0: Tired of sleepwalking through life on autopilot? And ready to step into a fully expressed, authentic, joyful life? Seeking a simple yet effective way to build a healthy spiritual routine that supports you on your own terms? The Awakening Membership makes resources to develop or deepen your spiritual practice portable, affordable, efficient, and fun. Join now for immediate access to SA's most profound spiritual practices, including guided meditations, transformative coursework, insightful masterclasses, inspiring spiritual talks, monthly live Dharma workshops with SA, weekly email inspiration, and more. The Awakening can be easily accessed on your desktop or our handy mobile app, so you'll always have the spiritual support you need when you need it. Ready to release your limiting beliefs, harmful mental conditioning, unhealthy habits, and those pesky personal demons once and for all? Join the awakening today via the link in the show notes. Use the code SSS for 10% off as an exclusive Spiritually Sassy Show discount.
1: What's up, my loves, and welcome back to the Spiritually Sassy Show, where we're redefining what it means to be spiritual in the modern world. I'm your host, Sade Simone. I'm a mystic, an artist, a speaker, an author, and a creator of the Somatic Activated Healing Method. And I'm so excited and so grateful that you are here And you are in for a treat. Oh my goodness. Today's guest is someone that I have looked up to for as long as I can remember getting into this wellness, meditation, spiritual space. Someone that I've sat in retreat many times with. Someone that I've just been like so profoundly impacted that I'm actually a little nervous, you know, having this legend in the house. I'm a little (laughs) like, for me, this is what it means to be starstruck is when you have Sharon Salzberg sitting in front of you. So let me give um, Sharon, uh, you know, a, a little bit of an intro. If you don't already know uh, Sharon Salzberg's work, uh, Sharon's a meditation pioneer. I think we can credit you for the meta mantra that we use today. I think it's single-handedly your work that we can actually practice this in the Western world. So it's so insane. And like, wow, um, Sharon is a world-renowned um teacher and a New York Times bestselling author. She's one of the first to bring mindfulness and loving kindness meditation to mainstream American culture over 45 years ago, inspiring generations of meditation teachers, including myself. Sharon is the co-founder of the Insight Meditation Society and the author of 12 books, including the New York Times bestseller. The Meta Hour, uh, which is her podcast, has gained over 6 million downloads and features interviews with thought leaders from the mindfulness movement and beyond. Her new book, which is what we're here to talk about today, is called Real Life, The Journey from Isolation to Openness and Freedom, which comes out on April 11th. Um, So welcome to the show, Sharon Salzberg. Hi. Hi. It's so great to see you. Great to see you, my dear. And thank you so much for making the time to talk to us. It's, it's a great delight. It really is. Oh, thank you, my love. And thank you for, on behalf of every meditator, on behalf of everyone who's being touched by by your work, I don't think often so many of us have the opportunity to look into your eyes or speak to you directly, just saying thank you on behalf of everyone who's who has made life-affirming choices after being touched by your work. So thank you for that. Oh, thank you. Very much. Yeah. Okay, let's jump into it. Uh, your latest book, Real Life, The Journey from Isolation to Openness. Can you tell us about the book and what called you to write this book?
2: Well, like many people, I, I was living a very secluded life during kind of the height of COVID, the beginning of COVID, really. And um, I have a, a house in Barry, Massachusetts, which is next door to the retreat center I co-founded in 19... 19- 76 and i was in new york uh in march of 2020 and i thought maybe i'll go up to barry for two weeks and ride this out you know so much to my shock several months later i was still here and uh over passover uh i watched this show online called saturday night seder and um I was raised in the Jewish tradition, but was not really observant at all. But Passover has other layers of meaning for me, like family and finally, you know, and getting together and things like that. And so uh, I watched the show and it was brilliant and funny. I think it was one of the first shows created with the writers not being in the same room. And it had, you know, amazing music and uh, it was very funny. And it had these rabbis who actually... I felt I was learning, you know, watching it. So it reminded me that not in terms of geopolitics, but symbolically, that journey is one from Egypt, which means literally narrow straits or narrow place. It's a journey from being confined, constricted, shut down to openness and freedom. And so I thought, oh, that's the arc of a book. And and that's really what inspired me to write the book. And it's the first book I've written where I was not also traveling all the time, you know, and trying to snatch an hour here or there. So uh, it is an interesting
1: process. Mm-hmm. Can you define the word openness and freedom?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, in good Buddhist fashion, I'll start with the contrast. You know, yes, please. <laughs> there are times not when we are just feeling a certain feeling like fear or shame, but when we're locked into it where it's overwhelming in some way. And so our world gets very small. We feel we have no options. We can't imagine a bigger perspective. And so we are in effect imprisoned by the circumstances of the day. You know, what somebody said to us at work or whatever it is, you know, it's like it defines us. And so, The opposite of that is a world where we do see options, where there's some spaciousness, where we can breathe free, and we can admit what we don't know, and that's okay. And also where we're connected. We're connected to one another, a bigger picture of life, that sort of small, confined, tight world. We're very disconnected. We're disconnected from ourselves. We're disconnected from others, and there's a lot of suffering there.
1: Mm-hmm. and it's a uh, shame is you know perpetuates this uh, it leads us to isolation and it's yeah. it's, such yeah. a, it's such a it's such a tricky little uh emotion right because it's essentially is signaling to us to go out and reach out and, and engage with people and but we do the polar opposite we translate it in like Isolate. I'm. I'm bad. I shouldn't exist. I shouldn't be around people. But it's actually signaling you need community. You need others. You need to you know go and yeah. like connect. Yeah. Um, why do you think we experience so much shame in the West? Like, why is that such a a default for us?
2: Well, I, I think um, there is a fundamental confusion culturally because we're taught it's a good thing, and you could say like remorse might be a good thing. Like, you know. There's a beautiful, beautiful statement of the Buddhas where he said something like, if you truly loved yourself, you'd never harm another. You know, and sometimes we remember like, "Oh, I said that, or, you know, or I said nothing. I really sat there and said nothing. And we can feel like the lack of love for ourselves that was behind it, and it's painful. But we can feel the pain, admit the wrong, maybe make amends, whatever we, we decide to do. But we move on with a sense of potential for change, right? I am not only that stupid thing I said, you know, life is bigger than that. And we, we can move on and see if we can possibly not do it all over again in the same way. Whereas with shame, it, it's more like a lacerating self-hatred. It's just as you described it, like I am this, not that, not that that was bad or that was a mistake, but I am bad. I am like a mistake. I'm so awful. And it's a, like a wholesale condemnation of us, and and we just pile on, and it's not going to be onward leading. It's not going to help. That's what's confusing because we think, oh, that's the right thing to feel because I messed up so badly, but it's just not going to help in any way. You know, I think the one of the last places I was teaching in person in early March or late February of 2020, uh, I was in a, a house of somebody – And there was a psychologist there and she said, um, the brain filled with shame cannot learn. And I thought, oh, right. You know, it's like we can't learn. We can't resolve to do better. And it's confusing because we're sort of taught like that's the way you're going to get on. That's the way you're going to change a habit. That's the way you're going to make progress in something. And it's not.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Wow and have you tied in like shame with like self-destructive behaviors like have you can you speak to that how these two kind of like go to go together?
2: Uh, yeah, that's a very interesting point you know because um there's so much that we do with feelings we we uh, find intolerable we so, so much we do to avoid them you know and a great deal of self-destructive behavior comes from that and uh, so it would be a whole process of first being able to look at the shame, you know, without adding more shame. <laughs> and and in a way, having a loving environment around it for ourselves. And then being able to look at the act. What is it we're so freaked out about? You know, what are we so fixed about? And in looking at what we said or what we did, being able to also have a loving environment for ourselves in that, like, this is the human condition. One of the things we tend to do when we're feeling really upset like that is isolate. Like, I'm the only one who has ever mispronounced a word on a stage or I'm the only one who's ever, you know, done something really stupid. And of course, it's never that we are the only one, ever. Mm. And so we kind of keep tracing back in a way you know, from being able to hang out with the shame and be kind to ourselves, uh, being able to hang out with the memory and be kind to ourselves, remembering always that life is change. You know, we're not fixed. We're not definitely going to be exactly the same person tomorrow we are today. We're not. And, and just reminding ourselves of what we actually do know.
1: Mm-hmm. And when you say hang out with shame in like practical terms and and of course you' you have taught you know, Hundreds of thousands, millions of people at this point, like that specific practice. But for someone who's like, I'm in a shame spiral. I've bought into the shame bus and I'm living in that bus and I'm not, I haven't gotten off of that shame bus in a long time. Please help me get off of it. I'm looking through the window. It looks like people are, life is happening, but I'm stuck in here. I can't get out. Like, how can we start even like, taking, unbuckling the seatbelt. Cause in the shame bus, you know, somehow people are still wearing the seatbelt. Uh, you know, like how do you start to make your way out of that space?
2: Um, it too is a process, you know, and I, and there are many ways, you know, I did it through meditation cause that was my path. Um, you know, I went to India when I was 18 years old and, and, uh, I just learned some tools and learned learn to use them. And slowly over time I began to see, Oh, I'm still getting caught, but it's not lasting seven hours anymore. <laughs> it's lasting more like 70 minutes. That's a big change. And then it's lasting, you know, a shorter and shorter time, things like that. Um, it's part of the process is uh, we call it a pivot. It's like when we have a strong emotion of any kind, we get fascinated and all caught up in what it's about. You know, he said this, or I said that, or the story, in other words. And so rather than in this case, what we're ashamed of, we pivot like as though to ask ourselves, what's shame itself? What does it feel like? You know, not what I'm about to be ashamed of, but what is it? What does it feel like in my body? And that's the first place we look like, what does it feel like in my body? And then it's kind of watching the, the movie because all these feelings are very complex. You know, if you take a moment of anger, for example, and really look at it over a little period of time, not judging it, but just looking at it, you see moments of sadness, moments of fear, moments of guilt, and almost always moments of helplessness. So what's in that shame? Like what's cooking? How much loneliness is in there? How much, you know, you don't have to ask yourself the questions, you just have to look. Mm-hmm. And, and we see it's a whole complex world of conditions and things we've been told and things we believed or things we tried. You know, very often the sort of burden we carry of, of these old habits are things that were kind of useful once, you know, when we were a child, when we were very, very young, when it was a matter of survival, for example. Like if shame has us want to hide Maybe hiding was a good idea at one point, you know, but you don't really want it to be your chronic state, like your go-to place, you know, whenever there's stress, because it's so limited. And, and so we really just kind of see the nature of, in this case, shame. And you see it's an alive system. It's moving. It's, it's shifting. Uh, we can have a different relationship to it. And in that relationship where we're interested and we're paying attention, there's some space and then in that space you might ask yourself how do I want to go forward you know do I want to try to make amends do I want to just forgive myself as best I can and remind myself change is always
1: possible but it's up to us Oh my God, that's so beautiful, Sharon. Thank you. So it's it's not so much about looking at the story that is wrapped up with the feeling. It's more about looking at the mechanics of the feeling and understanding right. that that's feelings change. They're not a solid. They don't. They are not like the 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 definition of our biography. They're not a definition of of who we are. It creates this uh, capacity to see that everything is constantly uh, mm-hmm. moving, changing. Um, mm-hmm. and less of this fixed, you know, stickiness. So by, you know, it's almost like you're, you're giving, um, um, you know, in the Chud tradition, Lama Sutran's work, uh, in feeding your demons, you personify the shame. You, you, you put it sitting in front of you, um, you go to the body, you track it. Okay. This color, this texture, um, this, this shape, this smell. And then you take it out of your body and you put it in front of a chair and then you you say and and that morphs into a whole you know life-size figure and then you kind of have that kind of conversation with it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um i i love that I yeah
2: love and that then somewhere. should
1: you feed it right that's right and then you it. offer yourself yeah. as the as the food to the demon you yeah know? i wasn't
2: gonna get into the menu but you're right of course you, you do <laughs> yeah. offer yourself but that's such an interesting perspective you know it's like Sometimes we say that too, like in in the Burmese tradition, you know, like you have a a kind of nasty inner critic or you have a, you know, pervasive um, burden like shame and then invite it in for a meal. Keep an eye on it. Don't let it have the run of the house because maybe it'll steal the silverware or something. But you don't have to be so freaked out. Actually, your awareness, your capacity for compassion is stronger than the shame, however strongly it appears. It just is. And so you can actually hang out with it a little bit, you know, and be gracious. And so I used that example once in teaching and I said, you know, invite whatever it was, you know, Mm -hmm. your demon in for a meal. And someone in the room didn't like it and they said they didn't like it. And I said, well, how about inviting them in for a cup of tea? And they said, how about a cup of tea to go? And I said, okay, if that's going to be it, let it be a cup of tea to go, whatever the extent of your hospitality is. But it's kind of a breathtaking view that our awareness can
1: handle this actually if we give it a chance. It's that it reminds us that feelings and thoughts can't hurt us. What hurts us is how we relate to them. And I think that, you know, That's what you said, this breathtaking moment of like, wow, I can actually hang out with this because it doesn't have all the power that we think it does. It only does because we have given all that power, right? Yeah. Beautiful. You said the word forgiveness. Can we touch on that? Like how vital is forgiveness for someone who is on the healing journey?
2: I think what's vital uh, to begin with, for sure is a kind of forgiveness of ourselves in that we have to allow ourselves to feel whatever we feel, you know, and not have this kind of perfectionistic model. Like I should never feel anger or fear. Like how pathetic am I? I've been meditating for 50 years and this is still coming up. How terrible. Um, It's sort of allowing every feeling the dignity of its existence, which doesn't mean we want to buy into it all you know and get lost in it but we have to acknowledge yeah this is happening and it's kind of natural whatever it is this is happening um because some things in life this is one of my favorite sayings actually just hurt they hurt it's not because we have a bad attitude it's not because we need to change our thinking they just hurt what we don't need is like extra suffering you know, of all that isolation and clinging, like I'll never feel anything else, or, or whatever it might be. You know, but these feelings they come and go, and and it's okay, it's truly okay that they come up. And we need to forgive ourselves for all of that. There's the gap we're looking for in some ways is between what we're feeling and how we act. You know, you might feel tremendous fear, for example, come up, but you don't necessarily want to break your lease and move out of your apartment, you know, and only a week later go, whoops, I didn't really mean to do that, you know? I've done that. You have? (laughs) Oh, no. Oh, yeah. Uh
1: (laughs) Keep going. I'm just like naming it because it's a real thing that I've done it and a few times, actually, but here we are.
2: Mm. Yeah, I I mean, I feel less um, moved about you know, the idea of we must forgive others because I've seen, um, I've seen many things, you know, one is I've seen people go through extraordinary processes of, uh, inner reconciliation with something, you know, um, but they don't like to call it forgiveness. Like I I was teaching once, um, in a place, uh, that I knew had been, uh, people had experienced like terrorist attacks. And there was somebody in the course who was kind of wiggling a lot. I could tell he was in pain. He was very uncomfortable in his body. And the colleague I was teaching with gave a talk on forgiveness and he came up to complain to me about it. And, and he said, um, he'd been in a terrorist attack and so his body was kind of trashed. And And he felt all this pain. He said, I'll never forgive them. And he said, but what I've learned is absolutely essential is that I learned to stop hating. And I thought, I'll take that, you know? You don't want to call it forgiveness? Fine with me, because for some people, many people actually, forgiveness kind of implies forgetting, and it doesn't have to at all. You know, I I see it as some inner state of freedom of not being defined in a way by the actions of others. And, um, you know, in a less intense example, I have a friend who is, he's just a, he'll describe himself as, I think accurately as a kind of, um, he like goes over a grudge again and again and again and again and again in his mind and, or someone's bad behavior, you know, even if it didn't affect him, you know, he'll just go over and over and over and over and over and over. And he did that once for some period of time around someone, And then he said to me, um, I think it's actually an AA expression. He said, I let him live too long rent free in my brain. And he thought, yeah, you know, like, look at how many hours have now been spent in obsessing about this guy's actions. You know, you could be having a good time. You could be taking a walk, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Wow. And um, I, I, I 100% agree with with all of it. And I think one thing that's coming up for me, like Trudy Goodman was on the show um, recently and she said something like certain acts are unforgivable, but the person can be forgiven. Mm-hmm, I think mm-hmm. that, that openness from like where it's guilt versus shame, where we're attaching mm-hmm, someone's mm-hmm. actions to the core of their being mm-hmm. and kind of dismantling that. I was like, oh, that's really deep, Trudy. Thank you for offering that, you know? And that's, and I I love what you're saying too there. And one thing that came up for me, one of the things that I've learned, one of the many things that I've learned from you, it's real versus it's true. Mm -hmm. Um, God, I forget where, maybe we're talking about like five, six, seven years ago, sitting with you in one, like, I don't, what's that, Garrison, uh, Garrison Institute. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just remember hearing you say that, and I was like, oh okay, it's real that this happened and it's real that I feel this way, but is, is this the... I mean, please, you you, mm-hmm. you take it away. <laughs> you explain that to us because it, it's applicable to everything in life, right?
2: Well, it's actually... It came from a story uh, from my Tibetan teacher, Sonny Rinpoche, where um, he tells a story about... I think it was Malaysia he was in. It, it was someplace... I think it's Malaysia that has um, two very very tall buildings that are connected on like the hundredth floor or something, you know, mm-hmm, by a mm-hmm. skywalk. Um, so he was up there with uh, a friend of his and turns out that he has a certain fear of heights. So his friend sort of walked casually across this, this glass bridge to the other building. And he would, Sonny Rinpoche would start and he'd get, he'd have a panic attack. He'd be petrified. He'd go back, he'd try again. He'd take a few steps and he'd go back. And uh, he would watch. He try to talk himself out of it. You know, like he'd see this whole family going across, and the bridge didn't collapse. So he'd say to himself, "Oh look, you're so stupid. Like here's all these people. You're just one person. It didn't collapse with them. It's not going to collapse with you." So he'd take a few steps, couldn't do it, walk back. He thought he was going to have to go like all the way down in the elevator, across the street, and then go all the way up to the other building to, to meet his friend. And he's like waving to him and stuff. And so finally what he did was he took a few steps. He looked at the fear and he said, that was his saying, this is real. I'm really feeling this. It's really intense. I don't have to t- try to deny it or up-level it, you know, make believe it's not there. It's real, but it's not
0: true.
2: You know, it's not evoking a deeper truth. And, and it's a little bit like what I was referring to earlier. It's like things that made sense when we were two years old, for example, in some bad situation, they did make sense. There were a logical effort to be safe, you know, leave awareness of your body, get numb, um, whatever it might be. It doesn't make sense necessarily when you're 45, you know, or you're 32, or and it's not really a question of survival anymore so we get to say to ourselves this is real like honor this feeling don't belittle yourself don't put yourself down for what you're feeling it's real but is it true and that's where over time we really get confidence like my awareness can handle this awareness can handle this loving kindness can handle this
1: that's beautiful and this kind of leads me perfectly to um, one of the topics in your book about navigating loss without getting stuck in bitterness or disconnect. And that's the process that I'm in right now, you know, with mm-hmm. my mom's death. And um, I wake up and go to sleep with with similar flashing memories of like her state at the hospital bed Um an hour before she died or or after she died, they left the, the respirator on. So her chest was rising and, and settling, rising and settling, even though she was already dead. Um, and then me crying and the nurse asking me to stop, you know, crying too loud. It was just like all these things that were like that the list goes on and on and on. So the bitterness, the sourness, the anger, you know, all of that, it, it's not... It's not, not here, but it, it, I still can have a uh, connection. I can still like engage with the world without that being the only lens I have mm-hmm, over mm-hmm, my mm-hmm. life and, and others. Um, but it's really interesting to, to be at this place of like, I thought, it, it's almost like you, you think you know pain until for me, like losing my mom was like, wow, this is like it's this insane void. I think Anne Lamott, you know, friend of yours has spoken about like, it's almost like you lose a a a, 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 a limb, you lose an arm or a leg and you, you just kind of learn how to walk without a leg now. Mm-hmm. So I'm in that process of like learning to walk without a leg, without being bitter about it. Um, so can you speak about this? Cause this is part of your new book.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's a part of life, you know, and, uh we may not have experienced loss earlier I did myself, you know because my most profound losses uh to date have really came when I was a child um you know and and so we're not served here by the culture which kind of holds it death out as like something humiliating or they failed or you know should it's a big surprise at the end, you know weave it into your consciousness, your choices, you know, the ways we treat one another all along the way, which would make a lot more sense. And so you're up, or, you know, the nurse telling you not to cry so loud or, you know, I mean, you're not in a picnic, you know, like, or you're not in the movie theater. You're like a human being who just lost their mother in a hospital and plenty of people are feeling that kind of pain. And so, but we ourselves, I mean, it sounds so odd, but we open to a place where yeah, plenty of people are feeling that pain. It's not just me, that this is a part of life and uh, we can find one another in that pain. And that's a, a great deal of comfort right there, you know, that we're not so alone. And, um, you know, within the Buddhist tradition, because uh, there's always some belief system like of what happens after death, you know, and where they would mm-hmm. believe very strongly in rebirth. And they would also believe that um, it is said that the the most powerful means of connecting to someone beyond the body, beyond time, beyond space, is our own good-heartedness. And so that's where those rituals come from. You know, you do a good deed and then you share the power of it, the merit of it with somebody, even if they've died. Uh, Because it's believed not just because it's comforting, but they believe that energy reaches the being who is now journeying. So even taking away the belief, which not everybody has in rebirth, um, some recognition does come, not right away, you know, but I think it does come uh, with an understanding that, there's a connection that it didn't die, even if the person died, you know, the, the love did not die. And, and so, um, I think that becomes more what one experiences over time, but like, it's very common saying Burma where I did so much practice or was common, um, you know, where the, the retreat and the participant doesn't pay anything. Because everything you need is offered. you know so every meal is offered by family or a village. you know, people come together and they offer the food so and that's usually on an occasion like it's your daughter's birthday or something where someone in your family's died. and you know the family would go off to the monastery, pay for as many as much food as they could possibly offer, and then watch you eat it with tremendous joy that they could, you know, feed people and then do a sharing of the marriage ceremony with their person who died. So and the meals are very um they kind of there's like a formal processional into the dining room and then you're sitting maybe three or four people at a table on the on the ground, so you're sitting on the floor. So you come in and you bow to the Buddha and you bow you know, it's like you're sitting down. So I did all that one day and then I looked at the food, which is sort of family style, and it looked just like a Jewish meal. I thought, oh, that's like whitefish salad. That's like chicken soup. I'm hallucinating. Something's gone really weird in my meditation, and and then it turned out there was a tiny little Jewish population in Rangoon, and someone had died, and so this family had not just come with the the offering, the donation, but the recipes, and so we had like this entire Jewish meal in honor of you know someone who who died, and we could all share our merit with uh, with this
1: being. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. I love this. I love this, and I remember as soon as like my mom died, um, Venerable Sarah Trashler in the Mahayana Vajrayana community, um, in the monastic community, she she um, lives in Kathmandu, Nepal. She says you gotta keep doing your good work because all that good work—it's essentially what you said—all yeah. that good work is 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 benefiting your mom too in her next yeah, life that's right. and all the. That's right. And I was like, okay, I love you. Right now, I can't hear this. Right now, I can't yeah. even get out of bed. But like now, you know, uh, three months after she's died, I'm, I'm, you know, what? It's, it's making more sense. And hearing you speak about yeah. it, I was like, okay, yeah. fine. Two of my teachers, two people that I look up to, like are saying, then I should just like, you know, go. And I'm doing it. But it's, it's nice to, it's nice to name it and know that, you know that. And this leads me to a more sort of, um, you know, perhaps a different, you know, it's not a a different path. It's not away from the book in any way, but it's within this kind of more mystical kind of practices. Can you share with us a mystical experience that you've had?
2: A mystical experience I've had? Okay. Um, I wrote about this in a, a book called Faith that I wrote like 20 years ago. Um, and, uh, I had a freelance editor who asked me, um, what's the opposite of faith? And in the Buddhist tradition, it's not doubt. Doubt can really enliven faith. It can make it real for one thing. And so, so I just had one of those experiences where I blurted out despair. I think despair is the opposite of faith. So she said, well, you're going to have to write a chapter on despair. And I said, I don't really want to. Thank you. But I did. And it it brought back to me this experience I had um, when I was uh, practicing intensive meditation in Australia, which was, I don't know, 30, uh, 40 years after the death of my mother. My mother died when I was nine. And um, so I was practicing and. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, like, it all came back. Even though I'd done all this practice, I'd done all this therapy, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was in a state of despair, basically. And it was just a place I had to go through. And uh, in the process of, you know, coming to acknowledge everything we talked about, I acknowledged what I was feeling and, you know, feel it in the moment and, be kind to myself anyway. Um, I was walking up the staircase in Australia, and I had a vision of uh this teacher whom I'd never met, named Crowley Baba, who was the teacher of many of my friends, like Ramdas, and who everyone recounts as just the most loving being. It was sort of like love personified, and there he was. Um So my editor didn't like it that much, but, you know, it's it's what happened. Did it make it into the book? Yeah, it's in the book.
1: Okay, nice. Beautiful. Yeah, I mean, I asked this question about mystical experience because I want to, like, sort of mystify mystical experiences and kind of, like, you know, arrive at a place where it's – It's a mystical experience when we have a revelation that we have changed. You know, it's a mystical experience that we have, that we're able to, you know, forgive our 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 mother in, you Mm -hmm. know, in ways, you know, all the layers. And I understand your your like this inner revelation of our part in the puzzle of the forgiveness and Mm -hmm. the connection with Mm -hmm. mom and whatever. Um, So yeah, and then also up to these ones where it's like we have these visions and. You know, and someone is, you know, all kinds of like, it, it really is opening ourselves up to something that's beyond what we thought was the end of, of our reality or the end, the, the sort of boundary of our imagination, anything Mm -hmm, that goes mm -hmm. beyond that boundary, I want to put in a category of, of, of mystical. Mm -hmm, So -hmm. people could just like appreciate that more and, and seek it, go towards that more. Um, a question I have that I'm asking everyone, including, um, I'm going to be asking Gabor Mate later, uh, this week and, and I'm asking, you know, these master teachers like yourself, what is healing? Hmm. What is healing? What is, what, what does qualify healing? I, I'd
2: say a sense of wholeness that can, we can have even when our hearts feel broken or we feel uh, a really difficult, complicated emotion. I I think we can have it in terms of how we are relating to that. You know, something is in the room that is not defined by being broken. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Can you say more about it? Yeah. uh, uh, I think that's, that's sort of the nature of practice. It's like there's a loving presence that is possible even when we're looking at really, really difficult states. And that loving presence itself is a kind of healed state.
1: Beautiful, you know? I love that. There's a loving presence always with us, right? That's mm-hmm. it's such a beautiful, it's such a, a beautiful reminder uh, of something that feels so foreign in times of, of argument mm-hmm. and violence and abuse and neglect and all the things that we endure as humans. Um in your book you write about seek out joy in everyday life even when things don't go our way how do we find joy in dark and hard times like how is that possible
2: and sometimes people do it through actually consciously practicing gratitude like for most of us our minds are just not going to go there you know but it's not through force or coercion but it's through intentionality like if you're the kind of person who looks at yourself at the end of the day like how'd I do today? And if you're the kind of person, as many are, where you pretty well only think about the mistakes you made and how stupid you are. It's like you ask yourself, anything else happened today? You know, <laughs> anything good? And it feels so stupid, you know, but uh it's not gonna weaken you. It's just filling in the picture. It's having us pay attention to something we don't usually give a lot of air time to. You know, so we practice gratitude or we um, pay attention to a very small thing that we might have missed. Like one of my teachers, my Burmese teacher, said to me once, pay attention every time your hands are in water. And you think like I'm washing the dishes, it's a pain, you know, but, oh, it feels kind of great, actually. This tiny little thing I would have missed or a child's smile or... Um, a feeling of (laughs) rest, you know, uh, these little things we think we don't deserve them maybe, or we ignore them or we're too busy or there's too much suffering to honor them. But then we just get exhausted and we feel depleted and we can't meet adversity. So we're not doing well when things are great. We're not doing well, well, when things are hard, you know, so. Uh, it, it's really important that we be able to take in the joy.
1: Mm-hmm. And gratitude is the gateway to it. I love it. Um, I talked to Dr. Lisa Miller on this show and um, she said, one thing that I really loved is like, yes, gratitude is incredible. And now get to get someone in the, the state of gratitude in the like neurochemical, biological, super activated state, Uh, as a neuroscientist, she was saying that one amazing thing to do is to ask someone to recall the good things that they've done for others. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wow, that's really deep. And we have a practice like that in Buddhism, right? Sympathetic joy, where we have to recall our own good deeds and the good deeds of others. Um, And I was like, oh, okay, very deep. We'll, We'll use that in sessions, you know? I love it. Listen, Sharon, I have a question. You know, because you've had such a long career. You've changed the lives of so many people. You've seen the world completely transform in front of your eyes in so many ways. Was there ever a time that you just felt like giving up? Giving up my own practice or giving up teaching? No.
2: I mean, it's probably a little more complicated than that. I never thought it was the wrong thing to do, you know, the practice or some that set of values you know which honored loving kindness and gratitude and things like that i never like was dismissive like that's that's ridiculous uh i might have felt i couldn't do it you know that that would be more the the feeling that i would have like I, i'm just not i'm not up for this you know mm-hmm. uh, or this has worked for 2500 years it's not going to work for me um so I certainly have felt discouraged or I felt, but I've had, you know, incredible teachers and many of them. I have an incredible community. So someone's always going up when the rest are going down, you know, and then and we're buoyed up by that and remember, you know, what we really do care about. Um, and so I, I felt really rooted in that for a very long time.
1: Has the doctrine, uh, the Buddhist doctrine, like brought sort of relief for you in regards to like future lives or karma? Because after my mom died, I did spend some time kind of just hoping that my mom wasn't in in heaven. I I, I liked the Christian doctrine more than the Buddhist of potentially being born in this realm or that realm and, you Mm -hmm. know, or, or or coming back, period, you know, and having to kind of go through this all over again. Have you had a, a point in all these years that you've sort of questioned the doctrine and like even thinking about like, I know cause and effect are very simple and very relatable, but more the complex aspects of karma where some people go through really extreme, horrific things. Like when my mom died, she had cancer in her mouth, in her brain, in her stomach, in her chest, in her spine. It was just like, it was so fucked. Excuse my language. It was just awful to, to think and, and reflect on someone who lived such a hard life. And it was so loving and so kind. And her funeral was like being at a funeral of like a celebrity, 200 people came and they all had amazing things to say about th- the warmth that she brought to her life, to their lives. And I'm like, wow, that's so wild. The warmth that she brought to people's lives. That's like such a huge compliment, right? And that's my mom. It's my mom, you know? And I felt so like, yeah. But then uh, you feel good about hearing that. And then you look just on the corner of your eye to the, to the (laughs) coffin. And your mom's still there, dead, cold, ice cold in that coffin, you know? Um, So I spent time you know, and and we we the Lama Zopa Rinpoche, which was you know um, the guru that I took refuge in, in in Nepal many years ago. You know, he had the entire group of the in the monastery doing all these prayers and and making sure that my mom had a a a, a good rebirth and you know all the sort of um, very mystical things that we do in the Mahayana Vajrayana mm-hmm. space. So what I'm asking, it's like you know, you see where I'm going with this like walk me into that space I, I want yeah. to just kind of understand because and and thank you for being open to to being to being put on the on the yeah, spot I'm, okay. I'm, I don't know if people ask you these things but I'm like when do you have Sharon Salzburg you can actually yeah. ask her yeah. whatever you want that's you know
2: me no um, well I think uh, my understanding of faith you know or in the doctrine is, actually very much um, bound up to my first teacher, who was S. N. Goenka. And that was uh, January of 1971. I did my first retreat with him. And in the f- opening night of the retreat, so this is really like the beginning for me. He said, uh, the Buddha did not teach Buddhism. The Buddha taught a way of life. This is open to anybody of any belief or no belief system, you know, it's about a practice of awareness and cultivating certain qualities, which anybody can do if they want to. And so that's always been like the bedrock of my understanding. And so, um, you know, I heard about the cosmology. It made sense to me. Um, I don't mind it, but I've seen people struggle with it. You know, like I can't believe it. I'm like a bad and, and you're not bad. You're just have a different point of view, you know, like the important thing is, you know, like who knows what happens after we die, you know, but, uh, how are we living and does our belief in how, what's going to happen after we die affect how we're living in some good way or bad way, you know, that that's kind of the point. So, um, and the, the thing about karma is that the Buddha himself said, we will never understand it with the rational mind. We just can't understand it. Because for one thing, the universe is said to have no beginning. So in the course of, according to that system, in the course of lifetime after lifetime after lifetime, we've all done everything. You know, why something ripens at a certain time. We've all done everything. And I've often thought that the single most ridiculous emotion to have or perspective to have, given that, if you believe that, is self-righteousness. The guy who I'm so perfect, I'm looking at you way down there who are acting so terribly and I never could do that. Well, guess what? You've done it. You know, so it's a different feeling than like I'm carrying this karma from, you know, the past life. I did this or I did that. uh, We've all done everything. And is death sometimes cruel? Yes. You know, I think. Somebody once said, um, "The best thing you could say about this universe is that it's a bad design." It's like mm-hmm. what a terrible thing it is that we grow up, we form these attachments, we want to do good, we do this, and then it goes like away. It's absurd, and yet it is. And and so, kind of coming to a recognition, this this is what life is. And it would have been nice if we had the recognition if we were helped you know when we were children and getting older and this is the world this is nature this is how it is instead of feeling like it's this alien act and we don't know what to do with these feelings and we shouldn't have the feelings you know we have to hide them and um you know it's it's really so complex and so uh i do know people of course who get a lot of um feeling of perspective out of the idea of karma like say tibetan buddhist nuns who and i know one who was in prison for many years you know and was finally released and then left tibet to go find the dalai lama you know and with that escape i mean that was really an escape Where uh my own one of my own tibetan teachers who left tibet um and I think he left with like 50 people and five survived the trip, you know, something like that. And uh, that's the reality of many people's existence. It could be a really, really hard life. And um, the problem with the idea of karma is that people use it as victim blaming, you know, like, you know, it's just your miserable karma and you deserve it. That's why it happened, which is a terrible thing to do. And,
1: that's like the pure misinterpretation yeah. of of such a complex system. Yeah. yeah. And and thank you for sharing all that and and walking us to into the unknown and helping us to just hang out in that space that we don't know and it's much more mysterious and vast and and wild than we can comprehend mm-hmm. in a sort of linear uh, understanding of reality. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that and. You know, cause it's, it's, it's difficult for someone who has been like, you know, historically a good person to have such horrible things happen to mm-hmm, them mm-hmm. or to be a young child like yourself and losing mom and dad. And then like going through life as it's like, what Sharon didn't deserve that. My mom didn't deserve that. So it's kind of releasing that view mm-hmm, that, mm-hmm. oh, that's happening because of the, it's, this is the result of X, Y, and Z. Like it's way more mysterious than that. Mm-hmm. and um, I'm, I'm, I'm now coming to terms with that more and more. I think I did have sort of like a restricted, rigid view of karma that was like, it was like helping me, but not helping other people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, meaning like, as I do all these good things, good things keep happening to me, but that's not, the equation isn't that simple, honey, yeah, but don't stop doing good things, you know,
2: yeah. <laughs> don't yeah, stop
1: yeah. being kind, but you st- people will still do fucked up things and you will still make mistakes and you might get sick and you might die completely random, going to Whole Foods on Tuesday at 2 p.m. in the afternoon. You know, we don't know, but it's it, walk, bring yourselves up to that place. Um So thank you for speaking to that. And, you know, you, you, um, speaking about this, you write, you wrote on on an Instagram post an excerpt from your book, no journey is exclusively linear. Mm -hmm. Can you speak to this?
2: Yeah. And I think this is really an essential understanding and, you know, the way I teach meditation is a really big emphasis on maybe we have a, um, an object of awareness, like the feeling of the breath or something like that. And, we rest our attention on it. It is so unlikely it's going to be 800 breaths before our mind wanders. You know, it's more likely going to be one or two or or three. And that's okay because a really important part of the practice, a crucial part of the practice, is how we return. You know, you realize, I'm a million miles away. or It's been quite some time since I just felt the breath. So instead of getting down on yourself and blaming yourself and castigating yourself, practicing letting go gently and beginning again, I think is the most valuable lesson I ever got from meditation. It was like lesson one. And not that I accomplished it fully in lesson one, you know, but uh, it's really important because that's what we do in life all the time. You know, we go forward, we fall down, we have to pick ourselves up or let others help us up. We go forward again. We make a mistake. We have to figure it out. Lessons learned, we go forward. Um, and and every journey, I think, is like that. Uh, we feel like I've gone backwards, and we haven't really gone backwards. It's just um, different. You know, it's like when I was a child, uh, we played with slinkies. I don't know if they still exist, but it's sort of this coil. And, it, you know, you could make it go up and down the stairs and things like that. What is that? What's a coil? A, slink, and all a coil is like a, a round spring. You know, it's a spring that has different round uh, elements to it. And it goes on, you know, it looks like a snake or something like that. And uh, when we um, are in the up part of a loop, we feel up. When we're in the down part of a loop, we feel down. We don't realize that the loops are all going forward. You know, it's kind of like that. We feel... All is lost. I blew it, but we're going forward, and and that's what a journey is really like. It's it's not so, it's not like a one and done thing, you know. Like I'm finished, you know.
1: Hmm. Thank you for saying that and naming it too. It's it's. I think oftentimes we're kind of like, you know, um, fixated on feeling good and fixated on succeeding and fixated in accomplishing and fixated in the. In the sort of uh, producing, mm-hmm. and um, and one thing I like to remind people is that the practices that we're doing are not meant to help us to feel good, but to feel open. Yeah. Would you agree? And that's you yeah. put that in the subtitle of your book, so I I bet I think you agree. <laughs> yeah, 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 I agree. It's one of the things that I feel like I have learned from you. Um, you know, it's it's like a it's a wild journey to to be on the. To see what a lot of people uh, consider spiritual out on the social media space, and then actually to realize what really is uh, spirituality. What do you think? Um, what do you think? Sort of like uh, qualifies someone on the spiritual path versus personal development?
2: Um, I don't know that I would divide them so much. You know, because like in. Uh, Polly, the language. You're being so
1: sweet already. I'm You're being sweet. so sweet. I'm You're so such sweet. a sweetheart. You really are. I'm so okay. Nice. Let the tea, let the tea out, Sharon, please. <laughs> well, and, and,
2: uh, Pali, the language of the original Buddhist text, the word that describes meditation, which one would think of as kind of spiritual activity, uh, is bhavana, which means cultivation. So the idea is like we're cultivating the ground. So the things that we want, like insight and love, can emerge. In some schools of Tibetan Buddhism, they have this really cute phrase that they use. Instead of cultivation, they call it getting used to it, getting familiar with it. So that, of course, brings up the question, like, what's it? I thought of it a little earlier with something you said. It's like, that's based on a belief that we have had as human beings, these profound moments of connection of clarity, of love, of, of wisdom, but we don't live there. Usually we're not awfully used to it. You know, we have even terrible suffering can bring us there. Lots of things art, you know, inspiration can bring us there. We have this moment and it's gone and we don't know what to do about it. We don't know how to live there. Most of us. And that's why we practice. That's why we undertake some kind of some discipline or practice to abide in what we already know or have sense to be true. And that would be like a mystical experience, you could say, that everybody has had pretty much in their lives, but we don't necessarily trust it or abide there. And we can. That's what meditation really is.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. I love that. Thank you. And uh, for for someone who's who's listening to me, like, what's the difference between personal development and spirituality? The way I have kind of been naming that, um, it's like personal development is so much about me, mine, and I, and developing, mm-hmm. uh, like, individuating yourself and manifesting and me and, you know, all to do with like you as like this individuated um mm-hmm. kind of me against the world energy uh, and all about my needs, my life matter more than yours, like all of this really sort of a capitalistic approach to um all of our psyches, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And then the spiritual path, the way I have been kind of um, naming it, it's really about us and uh, not us, but we, um, really going from I to we personal development is very much about I and, and spirituality is very much about the we, and it's, you cultivate yourself in the personal development, you develop these, these qualities, but then if it's not leading you into community care, if it's not leading you into sort of an activist backbone, then you're stuck in a personal development Mm -hmm. uh, phase because anything that propels you from, From I to we, I consider that bridge, the the bridge of spirituality, um, of like mind to heart kind of thing. Um,
2: Yeah, I mean, I can understand that. I just feel uh, for the people, like I was one, you know, when, if your personal pain is is, um, pretty strong, then you can recite something about caring for all beings all you want, but you really don't care about all beings and you can't you have some other work to do first, you know, and I've seen many times both with myself and with others that it's often a natural unfolding that you start out pretty self-centered and you just want some relief and you want some help. And, and then over time, it's like what you're describing happens more naturally. Like, Oh yeah, it is a we, you
1: know, look around. There's a lot of us like, Exactly. And that's like, I remember that moment, uh, you know, in my trip to India, um, as well and that moment being like, Oh, okay, I came out here for me. And now I'm thinking about how can I, you know, help other people to experience this openness. So it's a natural next step. And also noticing, right, when your self-care practices have become so much about you feeling mm-hmm. good. Mm-hmm. And when anyone gets in the way of you feeling good, you hate them. But then you gotta go back and realize that you're you're locked in a loop, honey. Yeah. I I'd like to say the self-care is- Capital West. And I know, I know, especially in front of such a, a sweet human being like you are, <laughs> Sharon, the word should is not allowed, but I'm just going to use like, you know, self-care should lead to community care when the time is right and is to develop yourself, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, anyways, truly honored and so grateful for you being on the show. Thank you for making the time. I feel like I can... Um, you Know, like, go to bed tonight feeling like I have accomplished one of my dreams. So, thank you thank for you that, so Sharon. Much. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, everyone listening, buy her new book, Real Life The Journey from Isolation to Openness and Freedom, comes out April 11th, which is the day this episode's being released. So, go get it, buy it, buy one for me for your. Friend, partner, for your community, for your school. And don't forget to leave a review for the book. Books, um, you know, the success of a book really relies on the review. So write a beautiful review. Let us know how Sharon's work has touched you and supported you and and helped you to cultivate, um, you know, the loving kindness, this kind and open and and compassionate heart that Sharon has been teaching for so many years. Um, Thank you very much, Sharon, truly. Thank you and everyone also don't forget to leave a review for the podcast if you love the show rate review and subscribe um, and stay in touch with me at Simone on instagram and tiktok and don't forget we have a new episode every tuesday love you all so much